Today we're focusing on chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, and all of chapter 12. Uh, this section all hangs together. If you had a chance to read ahead, you notice that it's, it, it's all built around questioning. Okay, this is, and it's interesting that in Mark we have two periods of questioning. In the first half of the book, uh, chapter 2 is all about questioning. And now, as we come to the end, we have another section of questioning. Um, what's interesting is the first section of questioning is uh, more honest. People are asking honest questions, and Jesus is giving honest answers. If you ask Jesus an honest question, he'll give you an honest answer, and he'll reveal a, more about himself, okay, in the process of answering your question. But if your question isn't honest, if your question is a trap, if your question is really, you're not really interested in the answer, then what happens, instead of applying the principles of Mark chapter 2, the principles of Mark chapter 4 are applied, where Jesus doesn't reveal. Um, and we're going to see the use of parable again in this section, because Jesus is in that mode. Uh, they are uh, they are asking questions in order to uh, for for the wrong reasons, uh, for evil reasons, and so Jesus, rather than revealing himself, is hiding. He's occult- occulting his um, his identity from those who are evil, uh, but it still reveals to us information because we're on the inside rather than the outside. So we see these principles that we saw in the first half of the book still applying in the second half of the book. And we're going to end with a question that is going to be raised um, by the final question is actually going to be a good question. And uh, it'll be an honest question and Jesus will give an honest answer, right? And so uh, we see that uh, Jesus hasn't changed um, so let's, let's dig into this. Someone read for us chapter 11, verse 27 to the end of the chapter. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So um, Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Okay. So, first of all, who are the cast of characters? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, who are the scribes, and the elders. Okay. Okay, these are the three stooges that control the temple, okay? These are the leaders of the people. The chief priests, we know who the chief priests are. This would be the high priest and his 
uh, and his minions, his leaders. We're not talking about the rank and file priesthood. We're talking about the leadership. These were the people that purchased the priesthood from Rome. They're not the legitimate priesthood. These are guys who purchased their office from Rome because Rome, of, of course, the, the temple is a lucrative business, right? Um, we've, we saw that last week as we talked about the buying and the selling that's going on in the temple and, um, and all of the money exchange and all of this is bringing great wealth to these people. So they were willing to spend a lot of money on purchasing the office. And of course, the Romans are willing to sell anything they can. Um, the teachers of the law, these are the scribes, the lawyers, okay? Uh, these are the ones who do the bidding of these uh, more political functionaries. And then finally, we have the elders. The elders would be the nobility of Jerusalem. These are the leaders of the clans of, of, of the Jews, okay? Uh, these are the leading men of the families, uh, the nobility. They're the wealthy cats, the fat cats, okay? And so these are the people that all have a vested interest in the stability of Jerusalem, in the business of the temple, and they go to Jesus, and what is their question? Who gave you the right to come and mess in our playground? Right? Um, they're asking a question of authority. Remember, uh, rabbinic teachings, rabbinic teachers uh, came from different schools, rabbinic schools. And they're asking, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? Where does your authority come from? What are your credentials? Are you Ivy League? Did you graduate from the right schools? Who gave you authority? And then mixed in this is spiritual power. They don't know how to deal with spiritual power because these people are apostate. I mean, they don't have spiritual power. They're politicians, okay, and businessmen. Just like today. Well, yeah. We see this stuff reflected in the church, don't we? Uh, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or human origin? Tell me. Uh, Jesus basically uses the same strategy that they used on him, right? I'll ask you a question. And it's a no-win question, right, for them. Why is it a no-win question for them? I think it's safe to say that given their discussions, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe in God. They thought he was just some old crazy guy. Oh, yeah. So. Right. And John, is, John was not their favorite guy either. Remember, John's the kind of guy who says, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Right? God's about to cut down your tree. And he's talking about these very guys. Okay, and the whole temple system and the whole religious system of the Jews. And so they didn't like John. But the problem was. They can't win. A lot of people did. Any, any guy who had come in and disrupted the temple and unceremoniously arrested him and hauled him away. Right. But they can't do that with Jesus. Right, because he's got the protection of the people. And John had the protection of the people. The people loved John. The people, even in Jerusalem, felt that John was a prophet. 
And so if, the, if these religious leaders say, we do not believe that John was from God, then the people are going to rise up and they're going to lose credibility with the people. If they say he was from God, then Jesus is going to turn around and say, then why didn't you repent? Why didn't you get in the water? Why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you begin to act on what John was saying? And so they decided to say, um, I don't know. And Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you. Okay, so you can see how Jesus is not revealing to them because they're not asking questions with the right intention. They don't want to know Jesus' authority. They've already made up their mind that they're going to destroy him. Okay, so now Jesus goes into a parable. So I want us to read the parable. Somebody read for us uh, 12.1 and uh, read all the way through verse 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. <laughs> Rats, foiled again. Remember the cartoons? Rats, foiled again. And uh, so that's kind of what's going on here. Let's talk about this parable. Um, this is a famous parable. Uh, it should remind you of another parable. A parable from the Old Testament. Any parable come to, the, come to mind from the Old Testament? Isaiah's Testament. Isaiah, where in Isaiah? Five. Isaiah chapter 5. Go to Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah shows up probably at a harvest festival and he sings this song. Imagine Isaiah, he's got his little guitar, his ukulele, he's sitting there with his tie-dyed robe on, and he starts singing this little song, and everybody's going, whoo-hoo, yeah. And, um, and, and so he sings this song, and it is a prophetic song of judgment on the people of God. But if you look at the details, especially the way that it begins, it begins in the same way as Jesus' parable, okay? And so when Jesus... When Jesus tells, begins telling his parable, immediately 
everyone in the crowd would have thought of Isaiah chapter 5. Okay? Uh, So let me read it for you. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one or my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choices of vines and he built a watchtower in it and he cut a wine press as well. Doesn't that sound just like Jesus? Mm -hmm. Same introduction. And he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Okay, so this question, it ends with a question. Did you notice Jesus' parable ended with a question? What will the owner of the vineyard do with these tenants of his vineyard? What's he going to do? It ends with a question the same way. So you see the structure, the introduction's the same, the ending's the same, structured in the same way, okay? So Jesus is setting up his parable to parallel this parable. So you've got to read this parable and understand what it's saying and understand the contrast between the two. Um, Now, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard, verse 5. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. And I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice and saw bloodshed and for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about this, this parable. God plants a vineyard, all right? This is a typical picture in the Old Testament of God and his people. Let me read a couple of um, verses from Psalm 80. You transplanted a vine from Egypt, You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Okay, and it goes on and on, this picture of the vineyard. But you brought out of Egypt these vines, right? You know, that's how vineyards get started. You know how the California vineyards got started. Somebody went to France, and they stole vines, right? And they snuck them out of the country and they brought them to California and they planted them on a fertile hillside. And we've got a wine industry, you know, and people have stolen from different places all over the world, right? That's the way it happens. Well, God brings this vine, these vines out of Egypt, the people of Israel, and he plants them on this hillside that he has prepared. Now, God has done everything to prepare for a productive vineyard, right? He has choice vines that he imported. He does, he clears out all the stones and you know what happens. If you've ever gone to Israel, Israel is full of stones. That's one thing you realize. My gosh, have I ever seen so many rocks in my life? No, it's amazing. And so they dig the stones out of the vineyard and they pile them up on the edge of the field and you get a stone wall. Okay. And then as you clear out the brush and you clear out the dead vines Uh, You put them on top of the wall, and that creates what's called the hedge, 
okay? And it's almost like rolled barbed wire on top of the wall so that the animals can't jump over the wall and get into your vineyard, okay? And so this is the way you protect your vineyard. God has done all of this. He's prepared the, the land. He's set up for protection. He built a watchtower so that it would be protected from enemies. You could set a guard and they could watch out for the vineyard and keep it safe from animals and from other people who might come and steal uh, the crop. He also uh, prepared for its productivity by creating a wine press and carving that out of the stone and preparing it and getting it ready so that when the wine was, when the grapes were ripe, they could be, uh, they could be processed into wine. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But what happened? Sour grapes. Sour grapes. And after you've done all of this, right? All it produced was sour grapes. What could, God says, what can I do? Judge between me and my vineyard. What can I do? The only thing I can do is destroy it and start over, right? The vines are bad inside, okay? The vines are bad inside, and so they have to be, they have to be destroyed, and I have to start over. This is the problem with sin, isn't it? It's such an incredible picture of sin. God has done everything to enable us to be righteous. He's given us the law. He's given us uh, a picture of himself. All of this he's done for his people, right? He cared for them in the desert. He did all these things, right? He's blessed them. He's prospered them. He gave them every opportunity to be successful. And what happened? Bad fruit because they were bad inside, right? There's no hope. So God tears down the hedge pulls off the hedge, tears down the wall, and allows the wild animals to come in, Babylonians, and they destroy the vineyard, okay? And that's the judgment of the Lord. Jesus now changed. Now, with that in mind, we go back to Jesus in Mark chapter 12. Now, let's go back to, the, to Jesus' parable, which is different, right? Jesus' parable is different. Jesus says... Uh, what is his focus? Is his focus on the on the vines? Seems to be on the tenants and their action. Okay, right. So now all of a sudden you see the difference, right? Once you've taken the time to look at the original, now you look at the new one. So it's a matter of looking at your fish, right? So you look at this fish and you see, okay, this fish, this is a catfish. Now you look at this fish; they're both fish, but this one's different. Okay. And so as we look at this second parable, the, the contrasts come out. And we see that the focus is not on the vines. It's not on the people of God. Why? Because Jesus in a couple of days is going to deal with the problem of their sin. Jesus is finally going to remedy the internal problem of the vine. It's interesting what Jesus is going to say in John chapter... John hasn't been written, I know. But it's going to say in John chapter 15... Jesus says what? I am the vine. Why does Jesus have to be the vine? Because we've already proven we can't be the vine. Right? And so you are now the branches. So the goodness of Jesus comes out of him and into us. 
Jesus is going to remedy the problem of the vine. But now his focus here is dealing with the leadership. Because the leadership who are drawing the people away from God, who are abusing the people, who are using religion as a tool to oppress the poor, right? And the weak, those are the people now that God is going to deal with harshly. Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon them, okay? The tenants of the vineyard. Do you see the difference? Um, Jesus has already, he's going to deal with the problem of sin globally. But he has to, he does not tolerate abusive leadership. If God has placed you in a position of leadership and you're using it to abuse God's people or abuse the helpless, right? It doesn't matter if we're in business or if we're in you know, religion or what we're doing. If we're using our authority and our power like Putin to abuse defenseless people, watch out. Watch out. Jesus says, what, what should I do with the tenants of my vineyard? Okay. Who are the servants that the owner sends in the vineyard? Who are they? Prophets. They're the prophets. All the way down to John the Baptist, right? Whom they killed. Right? So he's speaking directly to what he was talking about in the last discussion. Right? You killed him. He even sends his son. And now he sent his son. And you are plotting to kill him. And by the end of the week, you will. He just keeps sending and sending. I mean, he's giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Exactly. So you were going to say something on this, Doctor. Opportunities. Opportunities. Okay, good. So many. He's he's not abandoning you immediately. He's giving you opportunity after opportunity. Right. Right. And so, again, we look at the Old Testament and what do people say? God is a God of judgment. No, he's not. God is a God of opportunity. He was long suffering, right? God's character doesn't change. God kept putting a stay on our execution, even though we deserved it, right? And it still all goes back to Eden. Because we are created in the image of God, and we have this darn desire to be God. Right. And, and we want to do our own thing, make our own choices, and we don't seem to learn from history. And Israel doesn't seem to learn from history. They just do it over and over and over and over. Nobody does. And, it, and it's so frustrating. <laughs> I mean, that's we're doing judges in Sunday school, and it's inevitable that... The people are again going to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they can't get out of the rut. No. But no. then on the other hand, the frustration of the fact that we can't leave sin alone and we can't stay out of it, we can't avoid it, is the whole reason for Jesus coming. Right. What, but why can't we? Because we are contaminated vines. We have the wrong DNA inside of us. So it doesn't matter what God does to prepare for us. It doesn't matter what advantages God gives us. We're still bad vines, okay? The only way we can produce good fruit is if we're connected to the one true vine. It's the only way. 
Okay? That's right. The older we get, the more we know that they ain't going to happen. No, no, no. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders have rejected. You have rejected me. But God's going to tear this place down, and he's going to start over with a new stone. And the stone that you rejected is going to become the cornerstone of a new temple, of a new system, of a new wineskin. Okay? Something new that's going to happen. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It's going to be marvelous. This is the church. This is the new people of God. This is the new vineyard. Okay? It's a new system. This is the kingdom. That's, that's coming. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, where does this quotation come from? It's Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Go to Psalm 118 because Peggy was real disappointed I didn't mention it last week. <laughs> it's so ironic because that's the psalm they're quoting when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. They're saying, okay. save us. It's not ironic. It's biblical, okay? So let's take a look. Verse 22 of Psalm 18, 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us with boughs in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. This is like Wednesday. And on Sunday, this whole thing started, right? The triumphal entry. Jesus entered and people cut tree branches with boughs in hand. He went up to the horns of the altar. He went into the temple itself. And this all was set into, into motion. Jesus quotes this because he's tying it all together. And he's saying, don't you see what's going on? Don't you understand who I am? Do you have eyes but don't see? Do you have ears but don't hear? Don't you perceive what's happening? Okay, so you see how Jesus is using the scripture to speak to the people, to speak to these religious leaders, these lawyers, these scribes, these teachers of the law who should have made these connections. Jesus, this is Jesus... This is Jesus being merciful, right? He's given them he's given them the page number in the law to see who he is. Maybe they, don't, they are they don't making get it. the connections and they don't want it to be that way. Well, yeah, obviously. They've closed their eyes to the truth. They don't want to see the truth. They're not interested he's, he's in the truth. Them. I think he really scares yeah, them. You think to Cain and Abel that time forward 
<clears throat> the easiest way to get something is to take it away from somebody weaker than you. And that's the way things have been going. You know, weakness comes in different forms. Absolutely. But that's the way it's been forever in humans. That's right. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, you really shouldn't do that. You need to love each other and love God and love me. And it was a whole new idea that he's, and the people who have been really successful at the old way are not very happy with the idea that uh, we should vote for the other party. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So, okay, now we move into the next, the next set of questions. Um, we have a new cast of characters. Verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Now, who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? Mortal enemies. Okay, Pharisees are nationalists. Okay, they believe in the, the eventual freedom of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. They are waiting for the coming of the Messiah to release them from Rome, whereas the Herodians are in bed with the Romans. Okay, and they are dependent. They're the vassal king. Um, Herod is a vassal king under the Roman Empire. Okay, so he's a sellout to the Romans. But yet they come together, both of them, because they understand the politics. They both are against Jesus. Um, this is the second time we see them come together to conspire against Jesus. Chapter 3, also, they came together. So they come with the express purpose of catching Jesus in his words. They are trying to trap him. And they say, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Okay, Jesus, we, we know that you are a man of integrity. You're going to tell it how it is. You're not afraid of anything. They're, they're building him up because they want Jesus to say something audacious so that they can trap him. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? We need to know. The people want to know. Jesus, do we pay taxes or don't we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, Jesus, who knew their hypocrisy, says, why are you trying to trap me? Okay, this is a trap. You could care less about this whole issue of taxes. He says, bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought him a coin and he asked, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So Jesus answers in an incredible way. He, um, he says, bring me a denarius. On a denarius, it says, Caesar divi Augusti filius Augustus. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. That's what's inscribed on the coin, all right? And it's got a picture of Caesar Augustus on there, or Tiberius, all right? And so Jesus looks at it. He looks at the inscription. He looks at the image, and he says, whose image is this? 
um, and they say, this is the image of Caesar. Well, give this then to Caesar because it belongs to Caesar. It's interesting that the word image that's used here is the same Greek word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for let us make man in our image and after our likeness in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So what is made in the image of God? What bears God's image? People, right? Right? So, you know, you know the old adage, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul on the back, right? You can't take it with you. What can we take to heaven? People. Right? That's what's important. God says people bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. God wants you render to God the things that belong to God the things that bear his image. This other stuff isn't important. It has to do with tax. Give the taxes to Caesar. But render your devotion. Render yourself. Give your children, your grandchildren. Give them to God. This, in this answer, Jesus reveals, I think, important principles about the, the kingdom, Right? We're not to be people who are focused on the things of this world, but focused on the things of God, focused on the things that really matter. Okay, so now we move on to the next question. The next question comes from the Sadducees, right? Uh, Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. And... um, Yes, the Sadducees are part of this upper class of Jerusalem. They're the Jerusalem hoity-toities, okay? They're the wealthier religious people of Jerusalem, and they are Greco-Roman in their thought processes. They are um, Hellenized, and they are... They only believe in the books of Moses, and they don't believe in the supernatural. Okay, so they don't believe in spiritual power. They don't believe that there is a resurrection from the dead. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons, and they don't believe um, in spiritual power, okay, miracles, those kinds of things. How can they be Jewish? They're Greeks. They're Greek thinkers, Okay. <laughs> They're Greek philosophers. That's, that's who they look to. That's who they're shaped by. All right? And they've rejected all of the rest of the Bible except for uh, the first five books of Moses. And so they ask this convoluted question, okay? This is a typical... I love this question because um, I think it's... If you're ever trying to share the gospel with people, you always come across people who like to do this. They look for a, some twisted theological argument that they want to create as it's a smokescreen, right? They want to get caught up in debating, uh, you know, the Virgin Mary or uh, the end times or, you know, all these different theological points that are anything but what's important, right? What's important is the identity of Jesus, right? The, the identity of Jesus, 
the truth about our sin and our relationship with God. That's what's important. But yet they want to get caught in these other ancillary issues, okay? And they, this is what these guys do. So they ask this crazy question, right? Seven brothers, all of them marry the same woman. She's passed from one to the next. Whose wife is she in heaven? And Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of dopes, right? You're, not, you're an heir because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. They don't believe in the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Okay, let's get to the issue. You don't believe in the resurrection. Have you not read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Notice he picks his, his text from the books of Moses, from the book of Exodus. Okay, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. These people are raised again to new life. That's the way it works. I've been there. I know. I know heaven. I know the resurrection. The resurrection is coming. This is why this is such an important issue for Jesus. So finally, we come to the last uh, question. One of the teachers of the law, a scribe, he comes and he heard them debating and he noticed that Jesus is giving them a good answer. He sees that Jesus is just chewing them up and spitting them out. And so he asked this question. This was a, this is an insightful question. It's an important question. Remember, one of the issues, one of the things that Jesus is so against is the proliferation of the law, Right? They had taken the law and they had created all of these regulations around the law. And those regulations around the law had caused people then to violate the very laws they were supposed to protect, right? So all of this legalism, this web of legalism that was the oral tradition, the oral law, had become an obstacle to actually doing what God had called us to do. And this scribe asks an insightful question, doesn't he? What is at the heart of the law? Rather than complicate the law, Jesus, can you simplify the law? Can you boil it down to its essence? And Jesus says, now that's a good question. Now you're asking the right questions. And so Jesus gives him a, a good answer, Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Okay? Horizontal, vertical, right? Love God vertically. Love Him if you are completely devoted to God, then you're not, going to, you're not going to break the first, the commandments that relate to our devotion to God. And if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to kill him. You're not going to envy. You're not going to do all those things. Okay? So he boils it down and he gives us this incredible um, summary of the law, of the nature of God. Well, said the teacher. The man replied, you are right 
in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as, as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says this in the temple. And he's a scribe. And Jesus says, dude, you're not far from the kingdom. And I love what the, ne- the rest of the verse says. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Right? Because what was happening? The purpose of the questions were to discredit Jesus, to trap him in his words, to destroy his popularity with the people, or get him in trouble with the authorities. What actually did happen? Jesus destroyed the credibility of the questioners. And as a result, he was improving his popularity with the, with the people. And ultimately, this last question that's asked by this guy, he's actually getting traction, even with the religious leaders as they're beginning to see the wisdom and the truth of Jesus' of the Jesus argument, of Jesus' nature. Now we come to the last part, and we'll zip through this last part as we conclude it, just because I want to tie it together for you. Um, in this last section, we have, it's really three parts. Uh, the first part, Jesus asks a question of the crowd. Now he turns his attention to the crowd. Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? And then he, he looks back into the scripture and he says, David writes about the son of David saying that, calling him Lord. Well, how can the son be greater than the father? So what do you mean when you say the son of David? What is Jesus saying? He's saying hidden in the Messiah, hidden in the son of David, is the divine nature. It's God himself. Okay? The the Messiah is greater than you think he is. The Messiah is God. The Messiah is divine. That's hidden in the Messiah. Then he talks about the religious leaders. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around with flowing robes and be greeted and respected in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets, right? They devour widows' houses. Okay, so for all of their outward expressions of righteousness and holiness and respect and honor, they are wicked inside. So what's hidden inside these religious people? Wickedness. What's hidden inside the Messiah? Divinity. What's hidden inside the religious leaders? Wickedness. And then finally... He has an illustration, as we see um, a pattern in Mark, right? Many times at the end of Jesus' teaching, we'll have uh, some kind of act that illustrates what he's been teaching. And this illustration, Jesus goes down into the temple in the court of the women is where the temple treasury was. And there's these big bronze boxes that look like a shofar, look like a big trumpet. And um, you can imagine the people coming down to drop off their offerings and the wealthy would come with a bag of coins. They would walk up to a bronze box and they would go, 
Cling, 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 this little widow saunters up when no one's watching and she drops two little bronze coins, the smallest shekels, into the offering box. And Jesus says, see this woman, right? She has given more than anyone else. They all gave out of their wealth, but out of her poverty, she has given everything that she had. What is hidden in this woman, right? True devotion. True discipleship. Okay? Don't look at the outside. Don't get fooled by what you see, the trappings. Look at the inside. Don't get fooled by what you see, what you think is the Messiah. Look at the inside. Think. Don't look at the religious leaders and get confused by what they demand and what they look like and what they, what they say. Look at the inside. You see the evil. Don't look at this woman and discount her because she's poor. She's given more than anyone else. Okay? So see how it all kind of ties together. And Jesus is revealing what is hidden. Jesus is always about revealing what is hidden. And that's what happens in this time of questioning. All right, that does it for us.